0: I felt like there were lots of signs like when disney said they were going to bring out the live action remake of the lion king i thought well that's a good that's like you've got to do it this year because they're going to do this and then you they'll release that i'll release mine um you know spielberg said that um he's going to direct a final jurassic park and that Laura Dern and everyone's back. And I was like, oh God, this is great. So that all these things are happening. Um and they sort of gave me signs, I think, to go, I've got to do it. And then also there just was so much that happened around islands and whether it was Christmas Island or Jeffrey Epstein's Island or the Fire Festival or I mean all of these things, and we used them all, of course, in the show, but it's um uh, it just felt like this year, oh And when that fire documentary came out at the beginning of the year, I was like, oh, this is great, because it's just so perfect for my show.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Brophy. Welcome to Quit Your Day Job, a podcast for frustrated creatives. Well, each week I like to talk to my favorite creatives all about how they turn what they love into what they do. And this week, it's a little bit different. I'm speaking to Trevor Ashley, who is an icon of Australian theatre and has been making his own work in the space for around 10 years now, but he's been performing for over 20 years. And he's someone who is so multi-talented. He's a singer, he's an actor, he's a director, he's a writer, he's a producer, And I think the way in which this type of conversation differs from a traditional quit your day job interview is normally I'm speaking to people who have made a transition away from some form of day job that they were really disconnected from and found a way to, in a sense, monetize a side hustle or turned a passion that was on the back burner into something that they then earn money from. And in Trevor's instance, he's never really done anything but be a performer for his job but the interesting thing about where he's at in his career is he wants to continue to make his own work i mean he gets cast in stage musicals he gets cast in live reviews of performances with orchestras yet he is someone who needs to create his own platform for work in order to be able to tick his own boxes i mean it kind of reminds me of an artist in a a studio that i work out of in Redfern, who I chat to about his process, and he's a painter. And from Monday to Friday, he'll paint every day, doing the sort of work that he can sell in the corporate space, which is much more photorealistic figurative painting and on the weekend he does abstract work because that's where his passion lies and it was interesting for me to hear this story about even a painter an artist a full-time creative who themselves has to delineate between money jobs and passion jobs which makes me think that no matter what it is that you love to do you're always going to have the thing that you're working on for the most reliable form of income And then the thing that you then really want to invest your passion in that you would do for free, no matter how far along the process you get, by monetizing your passions, you will always need to engage in that dance between doing work that you don't really feel like doing, but ultimately it's in line with your skills that you have and that you like to work with, and then stuff that you do because it's so fun and passion-filled and speaks to your spirit. And that is a dance that you will engage in for the rest of your creative life, which for most of you will be the rest of your actual life. So back to Trevor, I wanted to speak to Trevor about his most recent play, The Lion Queen, which I was lucky enough to be invited to a preview screening of last week or preview performance. And when I'm really turned on by something creatively, all I wanna do is talk about it afterwards. And for days of thinking about the project, I just wanted to find out what was the origins of this sort of theater where did it come from i felt like it was a bit vaudeville i knew that it was taking the piss out of films like the lion king and jurassic park and king kong to me this sort of pantomime riffing of a commonly understood cinematic trope for the sake of creating camp theater must have had its roots in something but I didn't know what it was and I wanted to talk more about the, the, the medium itself and how Trevor came to be making work in that medium and what drove him to create his own work and how he formulates his process so as to be as productive as possible. I mean, One of the, the things that Trevor said when thanking the audience that came along for the Friends and Family screening of the play was... Um, you know that this project had been six years in the making and finally had a chance to to come to fruition and for so many of the people who listen to this podcast we've all got our version of that which is the thing that we really want to launch that takes a long time to gestate and eventually through chipping away at it gradually we notice a, a point where it's time maybe because of signs from the universe maybe because the climate culturally is most ready for it. And that's the other question that so many people have is, when do we know that it's time? Sometimes it's just good to take the leap and put it out there and see how people respond. Other times, it's good to look for signs that now is the right time to launch a project and and finally give it audience. Well, if you enjoy this chat, please feel free to share it with someone who may find it useful as well. You can send it via copying the link from podcast app that you listen through and sharing it via text message or, and this would be most helpful, if you screen capture the podcast and tag me, Dan Brophy, I will repost it uh, on my stories if you post it to yours and it would be great just to know what you're inspired by, what you're which part of the conversation you find useful you can DM me you can comment on any of the posts I put about the podcast on my Instagram but I want to deliver more of the same so please let me know if you're finding it inspiring and speaking of which there is an inspiring vlog on my Instagram which is a creative wellness vlog every couple of days I will post a response to a question from you all about your blocks and things that you might be looking at within your creative process. So feel free to send me a DM with something that you're looking at, and I promise to answer every single one of them on the vlog. Well, please enjoy my chat with Trevor Ashley. His play, The Lion Queen, is showing now in the Darlinghurst Theatre for the beginning of December. So check it out, I thoroughly recommend it. In terms of laughing so much that your face hurts with a gag every three seconds, this is my idea of a great time. So if you're in Sydney and you want to go along to something to potentially take your mum to or go and check it out with friends, it is a LOL Fest. Enjoy. Yes. Oh, Trevor, Ashley, thank you so much for having a chat. Thank you for having me. So I love to start by asking people, when someone says, hey, what do you do? What do you tell them?
0: Oh God, I have so many different answers, um, I don't know, I, I'm a performer and producer and a, um, I do, you know, create my own work and then sometimes I act in other people's things and yeah, so there's a, you know, I do a lot of different things.
1: Was there a period in your life where you were wanting to do that but had to do other things that were not related to that to support that dream? Um, I really, I have been very fortunate,
0: knock on wood, uh, Uh that it continues, but uh, yeah, I had to, I worked only very briefly as a singing waiter at a theatre restaurant, that wasn't quite the dream but I was still performing. And I worked for the government for the um, New South Wales Performing Arts Unit. And I was ironically the camp coordinator um, for music camps. And so I like learned how to, um, I did all of the admin and got, you know, organized the music camps for like hundreds of students from all over New South Wales to go and go
1: to band camp basically. So there you go. I saw your show two nights ago, The Lion Queen. And it's about to commence a two-week run here at the Opera House?
0: Uh, yeah, well, it's where at the end of the week run at the Opera House and then we go over to the Eternity Playhouse mm-hmm. in Darlinghurst. How
1: long would that run go And for? that's another week there. And when someone says, oh, what's, what's the Lion Queen? How do you... What's the elevator pitch for that?
0: Uh, my elevator pitch for that is uh, I play Gay Ray from Home and Away, who lives in LA, um, and she is a failed sort of movie actress who was a soap star in australia um, and has tried to desperately shake that status of hers and uh instead she's but she ends up getting booked for a gig uh which is to come back to australia to be in uh the commercial for a brand new theme park on the gold coast which happens to have scary dinosaurs and all sorts of things so it's sort of a mashup of jurassic park king kong uh, the lion king all of those all sort of mashed in together
1: um oh we've got a special guest star, yeah. special uh, guest star as, she's,
0: <laughs> as she's hanging my dirty old corset and boobs up isn't that nice <laughs> The illusion is it's ruined. Fun. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? That's what happens when you see my undergarments that are currently being held together by gaffer tape. Um, <laughs> but yes, that that's life. That's showbiz. <laughs> well,
1: in terms of, you know, having a showbiz career in Sydney, what has the journey been like? Because I always, you know, I've always associated you with someone who is making their own work, who launches plays that are usually and I was trying to describe The Lion Queen to someone, and I was like, it's kind of like a pantomime for adults. Yeah. That's a bit burlesky, a bit sorry, a bit yeah. bawdy and a bit vaudevillian, yeah. not burlesque, but vaudeville. And it feels like the sort of, like a mixture between maybe what used to be thriving in the cross in the 70s, maybe, to the power of panto with a little touch of, you know, bawdy political humour and lots yeah. of cultural commentary and satire. Yeah. Like, what are the... I was trying to, I wanted to know, and one of the reasons why I was most excited to to chat is what is the origins of that sort of theatre? Where does that come from in our Australian culture? Because it feels like a very Aussie thing.
0: It is. It's very Aussie. But I look, there used to be these um, pantos down at the Tilbury. And back when the Tilbury was a cabaret venue, basically, Um, and it was people like Tony Sheldon and Gary Scale, they used to do these amazing pantos. And usually it would be based on a show that was on that year. So I know they did like, when the movie of Priscilla came out, they did one called Pavlova, Queen of the Dessert. And then they did something that was a Sunset Boulevard. The, they did Sunset Boulevard, the Panto, uh, in which um, Tony Sheldon played Norma Desmond. So that they sort of did some wacky things like that. And they sort of did that, that version of a show. And then when I put Fat one together, this was an idea that I wanted to do something like one of those Tilbury Pantos. And then Fat Swan, when Black Swan the movie came out, um, I was doing Jerry Springer the opera and um, my friend Martin Lowe, who was the musical director, he actually, said to me, you know what? You should do that. You should do Black Swan because it's so ridiculous. And I said, oh, that'd be fabulous. I was like, well, what will I call it? Fat Swan, of course. Um, And so we wrote it and then it was a massive hit and it just ran and ran and ran. And then the next year we did Little Orphan Trashley here at the Opera House, which used to have a different name, but I got everyone got up in arms about it um it was based on annie um and then we did the body bag a couple of years ago and that was you know where i was basically playing paulini slash whitney houston
1: um and which would have been not that yeah, would have been very close to the time that paulini was doing bodyguard that
0: was she had just finished doing bodyguard and had just been arrested so i was like oh this is gold um, <laughs> <laughs> That's my problem. I hear those things and think, hmm, I need to do something on that. Um And then this one has sort of been in the works in different ways for about six years. The scariest part was I shot the poster six years ago. I shot it in 2013. So I've had this image of me on the bloody vine hanging like that for so many years. And also I was a lot thinner. And so when I did this, I had to lose 20 kilos because it was like, there's no way anyone's going to look at that poster and then show up to the show. So I've lost 20 kilos to make sure I don't look that dissimilar to it's the poster.
1: Like, it's like the grinder image versus the one that <laughs> yeah, you, you rock exactly, up to. that
0: actually shows up. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it's funny because that was... It literally has been... This show has been in the back of my head for
1: so long. When something does have such a long time to incubate and gestate and the ideas get mm. richer and the jokes get maybe more specific and you'll be doing something else unrelated and you'll think, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going Mm. to weave that into the show. I have a little
0: notes section on, like in the notes part of my phone, I've had this Lion Queen file for years and I just would go, maybe I should sing that and I'd just throw that in. But the, um, not to give it too much away, but the Silks routine gag that I put in it. I've been wanting to do that for so many years of a somebody body double me um, and of course not look anything like me but we tried our best by putting them in a costume and a wig but obviously they're a fabulously fit um, aerial artist and I'm not uh, but it just makes me laugh the idea that I can so it was silk straight to shits and
1: giggles. When you do... Because that, that was one of the biggest laughs of the night, mm. I, I reckon. And there's something about... like There's one thing to write the gag. it's another thing mm. to have the the political commentary or the cultural observation. And then there's another thing to weave it in in a way that has timing and knows what, how, what the audience's expectations are and speaks to that. And so then the idea of you re-emerging on the silks just after your body double has performed this exquisite routine (laughs) and then leaning into it, allowing for the audience to just roar with their appreciation of how absurdist it was. And that's where the panto bit comes in the most, I think. It's Mm. like, it's not, like, its naffness is part of its charm in a way. It couldn't be perfect, otherwise it wouldn't be as fun. And
0: I think that's what's kind of fun about it. And, like, this one has been, you know, the most expensive and biggest production because there's so many set elements and things like that. Like, I mean, I don't know why I wrote a boat scene or why I wrote a T-Rex into the, well, I knew I had to have a T-Rex, but it was like, you know, having these sort of elements has sort of lifted the production, but also at the same time, you know, we still have to help the set get up when it blows up and things like that. I mean, it's all very silly, Um, but I'm, I'm enjoying, I've loved putting it together. This has been such a joy to actually put together.
1: There's a lot of people who would be listening to this who have their Lion Queen, who have the note section of their phone filled with a passion project that is yet to launch. What was it about this now, end of 2019, that meant that it was finally time?
0: I felt like there were lots of signs. Like when Disney said they were going to bring out the live-action remake of The Lion King, I thought, oh, that's a good... That's like you've got to do it this year because they're going to do this and then you they'll release that, I'll release mine. Um, you know, Spielberg said that um, he's going to direct a final Jurassic Park and that Laura Dern and everyone's back. And I was like, oh, God, this is great. So all these things are happening. Um, and they sort of gave me signs, I think, to go, I've got to do it. And then also there just was so much that happened around islands and... Whether it was Christmas Island or Jeffrey Epstein's Island or the Fire Festival or, I mean, all of these things, and we use them all, of course, in the show, but it's, um, uh, it just felt like this year, oh, and when that fire documentary came out at the beginning of the year, I was like, Oh, this is great because it's just so perfect for my show. And even though it's only one singular monologue near the end, it's it's so funny to put it in, you know, because it was, it's just topical. It's just things that have happened this year and it all just kind of went, no, this is perfect this year to do this. And um, and then it meant, you know, I could write it. Though it was harder this time. I think this one was the hardest to write because in all of three shows of this nature, I've stolen the plot. And this one is not a stolen plot. So I've had to really, I had to really work on what is the plot and where does this go and where does it end and why and what's the punchline of the whole show. And weirdly enough, um, it was when Melissa George was doing all of that um I hate being talked about being on Home and Away all the time. Um, that was the whole impetus for me to play her, basically. Um, so it was just one of these joyous things that sort of came out when she said all of that horrible stuff and said she'd rather be, you know, walking a French bulldog in New York and all of that stuff. That was always, I went, oh, that's it. That'll be funny though and it's very obscure it's one of those weird obscure references um I feel
1: I feel like I'm 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 a culture vulture I love humor based on pop culture references and I feel like this is just back to back to back references to something that's either from our shared 80s childhood 90s childhood versus and with the present day and anything that's been extended trashy pop culture periphery Mm. with a lot of current-day political smatterings yeah, as well. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, I tried to sort of make sure... I mean, I love... Phil's very political, as, as am I. Um, so we always wanted to have... I thought that actually there was going to be a little bit more politics, but it just sort of skewed a different way. But then, you know, when you had things like The Masked Singer to take the piss out of, it just made it... You just had to, you know. Mm, totally. Gretel Khalid's coming tonight, and she's in the show. So... Um, <laughs> that's what I always quite enjoy, is like, if we mention somebody and then they come that's always yeah, fun too it's like
1: the ultimate compliment yeah if you so you mentioned when you were thanking everyone because i was lucky enough to come and see a a, pre, a family and friends preview yeah. of sorts and at the end of it you thanked everyone for their contribution and then but listed three or four other people who did every other job that you didn't do. Yes. And then you were like, and everything else, I pretty much did myself, yeah. believe me. And so I, what if, of all those tasks, what are the ones, like, you know, there are some things that you would turn, that one would turn up and do for free because they just bloody love it. And then there are some things that, you, that you're you only doing it because you can't afford someone to do it for you. Mm. What's an example of either of those things?
0: Oh gosh. Um, I sort of designed a set this time which is probably not wise um, because I'm not really a set designer. Um, (laughs) But I couldn't really afford a set designer. So I did what I would assume, I mean, I literally did what I would assume Brian Thompson (laughs) would have done. So I was looking at Brian's designs and went, I think I'm gonna do this like this and have a big neon sign that says the name of the show because Brian loves that. Um, And so, It's sort of almost an homage to Brian. Um, So I quite enjoyed having fun with that. But then... Marketing and ticketing is probably the thing that I find the hardest. Because it's so much work. And really, it's very difficult, I think. And I think this is an Australian cultural problem. Is that we don't... It's hard to market yourself. It's hard to constantly be going... I'm fabulous. This is what I do, and pushing it out there, and some, you know, and I think it's just not in our nature so much um, to do. So, I I guess for for me, it is. uh, It's that that is like the oh god, I wish I was getting money to do this bit because that's the hardest part, and and just sitting and dealing with you know ticketing builds and all that crap. Um, And I had some help with that, but you know, just sort of sitting there and looking at Facebook click-throughs and going, what am I, like, am I doing this right? Like, is this what should be happening? And, and is this how you, how have I spent enough? Have I not spent enough on marketing? Have I, you know, it, it's tough, it's tough. And on a new product like this, this is, um, even though I would have thought that having done sort of so much previously that the audience would just sort of be inbuilt ready to see this and there are to a limit but it's been a lot harder to to move this one to sell this one because it's a um because it's an unknown thing because they go what is the lion queen and and it is it's very
1: much what is it so it's funny because there are a number of ways that you can receive it but you as in a um, Faye Ray-esque mm. garb with the gorilla behind you makes, a, like, oh, I'm seeing Trevor actually do what Trevor actually does yeah. in a rip off of King, King Kong. Kong. Yeah, and, yeah. and that you imagine would be enough to let people know. But even when I was in the audience, I went along going, oh, well, I, I like Trevor, I like Shannon, you know, mm. my, well, also Shannon Julie who's in it, who I love. And I thought, well, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a fun thing to see. But then in it, I was like, Oh, my God, my mum would love this. My my grandmother would love this. My dad would really love it because he's so camp. There's so many people that I... My brother, like, you know, would be, would be really into it. And I know so many friends who would like it. But then you only know that once you see it because it is such a... Maybe we're so used to consuming things that we're really familiar with mm. that when you get presented with something else, it's not so easy.
0: And I think, too, it's just one of those things that, as you said, the genre is very Aussie and very fun. And it's... I think it you know that lots of people could see this like it's not just really made for a gay audience at all And, and most of my audience actually you know are 40 plus year old women which I find hilarious um apart from the gays um but you know it's a um I feel like it's a really accessible thing because if you've read anything in the news or seen anything on tv or in a show this year you get it, because there's, there's, it's all about what's happened this year, really, mm-hmm. um, without being as specific as, say, The Wharf Review doing just politics all night, because even on that, you know, and I read and, and know lots about it, there is stuff that goes over my head in that show because it's so, you know, in about one particular small thing that's happened in politics. And um, this one's sort of like the, the GP version of that where you really... I've only had to watch the block, and you know, and a few other things on TV, and you'll know what I'm talking about, you know, um, or seen a movie, or seen, you know, big things that have happened, and and the obscure stuff I cut because uh, you go, that's ah, not getting laughed that has to go, you know. So that's yeah, how
1: I. Think it's it. funny towing the line of um, at some stage you'll have to put your face on. And I'm excited to be present for that. That's so great. Um, the. Yeah, towing the line between going, I want it... Because, you know, when something's really niche, it can be very perversely funny, because mm. if you get it, it's really... You feel like you're in on the secret gag, and mm. it's even more humorous. Yeah. And so, therefore, you're towing the line between being as broadly entertaining as possible, while specific enough that you can make a niche gag, which yeah. has a chance of getting a bigger laugh if it lands, Yeah, is, is the challenge.
0: It is, and I mean, we've got tons. I mean, it's... it's there's so many jokes in the show and it is like
1: back to back to back to back gags
0: i get really upset when i have like one line that doesn't get a laugh i'm like it's not getting a laugh and i say a lot of lines in this show and when i'm like there's that one that's driving me crazy that's not getting a not getting a laugh and it wasn't really meant to be funny but it's like that needs some be fixed. I need to change that. I need to have a laugh there, please. Anyway.
1: So you, uh, were you a singer who then became a performer who then started to devise her own shows or were you a writer who loves to sing? Like wh- what's your um, entry into this type of work?
0: Okay. So when I was a kid, I went to this place called Shopfront Theatre, which is in Carlton. And, uh, I, my mother took me there one weekend and basically i loved it and then i was there for years and every weekend my mother would just drop me there on a saturday morning and saturday evening about six o'clock i'd have been spent the whole day and then i'd go back on sunday and spend all day on sunday there and i'd create shows and i we did sort of what they called play building which was a group devised sort of work and then after we did after I'd done that, then I started writing my own stuff. What
1: age was Shopfront?
0: I started when I was five. Wow. And I was there until I was 15. So I was 10 years there. Um, But I learned everything there. I learned lighting design. I learned video production and editing. I used to sit on one of the full edit suites with the frigging big big beta um, video players and and I learned how to edit. And so um, I was acting... And so I was acting, and then separate to that, I was going to singing lessons and piano lessons and all of that, so I was doing that. And so at school I'd be singing, and then on the weekends I'd be acting. Um, And then I wrote, my first sort of show like this was called Dressing Room Drags. This is when I was 15 and straight. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Or I thought I was, or I was hoping to be. and um, I did this dressing room drag show that was um, me and my friend Chris um, put together and they were sort of... I'd never seen a drag queen, really. So the only drag that I knew, I'd seen Priscilla quenda of does the desert movie and I'd watched Gina Riley and Jane Turner do those sloughs. Oh, those what a drag. What a drag, yes. And so ours was very, very stolen from what a drag, basically. But she was... I was Carlotta Carefree, and she was Marianne Librafleur. We were the Tampon Sisters, and we did this show. And I roped in two others, and it was a musical review. And we did numbers. It was all. It was basically I've been doing this for <laughs> for thirty years, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So I did that, and then, um, so I sort of have always done all the things, and then. It was sort of fat swan that was the big time. I tried it again, but
1: really, yeah. so there was a gap between, you know, the, that sort of. I did time. cabarets.
0: Okay. So like just singing and doing that, but there was no, not not as much scripting and stuff. So I mean, but I went when I was working in drag for in the pubs. That was six nights a week, and so from t- when I was twenty-one to twenty. Six. I did that. So for five years. I was full time. Were you singing
1: in I drag? Was singing
0: in drag in the pubs, um, and then I got Priscilla the musical. Great. And so I left doing that to go and do Priscilla, and that was two years. And then I did Jerry Springer, and then I did Liza on the Knee, and that was my first big. Liza show, and that was with a band, and that ran and ran
1: and ran. Well, I suppose because in my mind, Liza on an e, well, Fat Swan was an extension of Liza on an e. Yeah, is that it, was
0: after. Was that
1: like a? I suppose Fat Swan was more of a narrative piece. Yeah, Liza on an Knee was just a, a cabaret, cabaret yeah. style. Um, and <laughs> was it was it that w- when people would have been buying a ticket to Liza on an e, was it oh, this is just a a more a more official version of what we see Trevor do in clubs? Uh, yeah,
0: I guess what they had seen me do and then I'd gone and done the musical and I sort of went, I'll do Liza. Oh, did I do Gentleman first? I think I did gentlemen prefer Blokes with Courtney first. I, th-
1: I remember... That was yeah, funny. Okay. Um, who, so, who was... Was it someone in Maryland and someone in Rosalind? Yeah,
0: I was... I was um, I was the brunette, of course, because Courtney had to be the pretty one. (laughs) Um, Courtney had to be Marilyn. Um, So, yeah, so we did that, and that was like 2009. And then later that year, I did Liza, and then Liza just went everywhere, and I've done her all over the world. And then Fat Swan was... Then I did Hairspray, and that was two years. And at the end of Hairspray, while I was doing Hairspray, I'd come up with Fat Swan, and that was what I did as soon as I was out of hairspray and that fat swan just ran for ages and yeah so it's um it's funny isn't it
1: do you do you have to start, to have to start so do you, yes. Will you start because I'm actually interested I mean I don't know if you're someone who can multitask and you can I'm, paint and talk at the I same can.
0: time I can right. I've done it before right. well, you can
1: just you can just ign- you need to take a pause while you just get a well, get a I moment
0: Okay, yeah, yeah
1: no I'm all right I'll just you know Get my I'll, I'll get the really the, the in depth goss from you while you're distracted. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what was the um, the process of uh, well, of all the things you've done? Do you prefer to do something that is turning up doing a musical for that's for which your steps and your positioning and your you know beats are really planned out for you, or do you like to? be r- like running your own show and deciding all those things for yourself? Well, look,
0: it is It is great to do this and to actually, you know, create everything from the ground up and write your own part. Um, but it's, you know, it's so much harder. And I think, you know, the frustrating thing is, as I say, you can have one-hit show and then you go... Well, now I have to push another one out. Where do I come up with the idea? And the hope that more people, you know, want to come and see you do it. And then it just, it's just tough. It is tough. It's nice to not have to worry about, like, to go into a major musical and not worry about marketing and mm. shit like that. Um, so,
1: Yeah. Marketing is a funny one because in this day and age, we're re- like it is a attention economy, and mm. the idea of having to compete, no matter what it is that anyone is selling these days, the idea of having cut through from all the noise that everyone is experiencing yeah. is the biggest the biggest challenge. I suppose. Uh, look,
0: I don't even know anymore. I I'm so, um, yeah. Look, I don't know. I'm so completely. Bewildered by all of it now, because back in the olden days, like when I did Fat Swan, um, I could put two ads, two full page ads in SX, and I'd be sold out. Like that easily. And I'd spend a dollar fifty on marketing, and you know, three thousand people would come. So it's a lot harder now. I find it really difficult. The you know getting the ads through Facebook and Instagram and where do people see it and how do people know when the arts pages have been cut to shit you know there's nothing left and um, you know to even get anyone to write about things there's no arts journalists left so it's hard to get an article I remember when we did Heather's it was like I spent every lunchtime um, doing interviews and stuff like that. And now it's just like, I barely had any. And it's weird because there's just no, I don't know how you promote things anymore. Like mm. I really am in the dark about it. And I, I wish I, I knew. And as you know, people, I bumped into somebody that a by the other night and they're like, oh, Trent, we're a big fan. We've seen all your shows. Like, oh good, are you coming to Lion Queen? They're like, what's the line, Queen? I'm like, oh my gosh. So people who I, you know, know like what I do mm. have um have missed things. So it's it, it's hard. I don't know how to cut through anymore.
1: It's one of those. I mean, it, it I would say it's actually just a whole new way of looking at marketing that needs to be relearned. From the very beginning. Oh yeah, and it's on the you know I, on the one hand you can be very specific with your targeting via mm. <laughs> like you know targeting demographics on on online and one thing you can be so whereas you know once upon a time everyone picked up the SX or the yeah. NX in Melbourne and nowadays it's like well what is everyone picking up but I suppose their phones is one thing.
0: Well, their phones and yeah, so you've got to be in their phone and mm. um, which is fine and you can sort of reach people like that, but then. You know, there's so much that they're looking at on there as well. So, Mm. I, you know, I'm just at a loss of how to reach everybody anymore.
1: I would say that, you know, being very specific with your demographic targeting via Instagram ads and Facebook ads and just literally Mm. going guys who like these three things and just go for like very specific, you know... and we do that. Else? It is. It mm. is like
0: you know. That's all the stuff we do. And I have my database of people who like. Oh yeah. Do you have I a mailing list? Yeah. Yeah,
1: cause I think mailing list are okay because you do get a chance to pop up in people's inboxes. Yeah, and it's absolutely. A and we do that. And mm. but um, well, even what you did on Wednesday with having everyone, you know, their friends and of before us, you know, performance yeah. was a good way to get. A, I mean, I sourced. 50 people I haven't seen for ages there because it was yeah. a lovely way to kind of go, oh, hey, I haven't seen you since. You know, it's a yeah. it was a good community. It was a fun opening. It yeah. was
0: really fun. And, um, you know, they they all had a great time. So the thing is, the show's great. So that's what I am thrilled with, that that's all been really good and really well received and you know great reviews and everything so
1: yeah it feels like it's um the most cohesive show of all of them so far because it's maybe because you had to write the story so therefore it wasn't just riffing on pre-existing scenes yeah
0: exactly and it was like you know in in the bodyguard the body bag i had to you know finish it somehow and it finished always with I will always love you in the movie and, and the show. So to sort of find another way to do it. I mean the bath was probably tasteless. But um
1: <laughs> This touches on something I really wanted to ask you about, which yes. is, you know, there are so many ooh moments in there where you think, yeah. how can I get away with that? And is yeah. and so it feels like is there a I felt like the you can the audience can really have fun with a is this too far gag? if the person's either disgraced or it's been long enough? Is that, is there like a set of rules around?
0: No, I think you just have to, uh, I ha- I did have my friend Richard did say to me, um, he came to a, a reading that we did just in my lounge room. And um, he said, there was one joke in there that I say to the one uh, black character in the show, and the line that I'd written was, uh, I had to say, oh, that was in my other luggage that you lost in act one. And she says, I was a different character then. I go, I went, ah, you all look the same. So Richard said, you have to change that. And so I did for the previews <laughs> in Wyong, and I said something else. I said, um, oh yeah, it could have fooled me. It just wasn't as funny. And the thing is, it works because, yeah, it's completely inappropriate and you can't say it, but you can say it because it's complete irony because we know what we're doing. Like, and I think that's the, and I can get away with a lot. I don't know why, but I have always been able to say absolutely hideous things and get, get away with it. And I don't know why and um, what it is about my personality that lets that happen, but it happens, and I just say it, and I don't care. Um, and I think it's a drag thing, too. I think just the idea that, I mean, Dame Edna it's an absolutely abhorrent things as well, and I think it is just that sort of Aussie, Dame edna you know, you can say something dreadful to someone. I Look, I think there's some that really... We've pushed the envelope a bit in this one um, on what I say and what I can't... what I shouldn't say. But I like... Well, look, I think the world has gone so politically correct and not that this show is, you know... I don't think the show's offensive. I think it's, you know, just talking about things that have happened. And I think that because it's doing that, I, I don't think it's offensive. Sure, I swear my head off, and there are some things that are absolutely unnecessary, but, um, uh, but are funny. But it was interesting when I I toned down a couple of bits and pieces, and then did it in Wyong last week, and went, oh no, that's gonna no, go back to being absolutely filthy because that's the only thing that gets the reaction that I'm used to. So, I don't know. I don't know. Did you think I went too far in any places?
1: No, but I'm someone who can really distinguish irony from hurtful, you know, know, ideas. And I think if you've got... uh, maybe as well I'm interested in the idea of it there's this sort of catharsis where everyone knows these things are taboo and they you you're not supposed to say them but then to see a drag queen who is presented as being this really um, I suppose like you're almost like a miss piggy style character where you're like yeah. really mean the whole yeah, time I'm horrible. and you're so horrible the whole time where it's almost a case of to- uh, um <laughs> Topping yourself constantly (laughs) as to how offensive, obnoxious, self-indulgent, rude—you know—all of the ways in Mm. which the character continues to become more and more sort of vulgar. So, when something is said that we all know is really inappropriate, but it comes from this character that's being painted as nothing but that, it's the humor has an interesting place because it allows the audience to make to laugh at the the fact that socially we've decided that this is wrong and here's a character that, that turns her that nose up thumbs her nose at that yeah. idea and so I, I think that there's definitely a place for it and I don't want to I don't particularly want to live in a world where there isn't a where place for it. where there isn't
0: that. exactly and I guess that's for me uh, that's how I believe too
1: but then you know we also ha- has to be acknowledged that we're like privileged white people yeah, and yeah, you know yeah maybe absolutely let's, you know let's ask our friends who aren't and you know see how yeah. they feel about it but I can't help but think that there's you've got to have a couple of little safe spaces in the culture where you can yes. have caveats. Like, we know this is disgusting and we're framing a gag around the fact that there are people in the world that exist who are like this. Or something. Yes,
0: absolutely. And I think, you know, <clears throat> because everyone cops it and that's the that's the main, you know, gist is that everybody gets... Um,
1: it's equal opportunity offensiveness. It's offensive.
0: equal opportunity offensiveness, exactly. So, like, you know... Everybody get, has has a little moment in there in this show where we can say, "Oh, we had a go at you as well." Um, and you know, we were careful about particular things, like we didn't ever want to do a, um, uh, you know, the fact that there were, we have a giant ape, a giant gorilla. We didn't want to ever go down the Adam Goods. Thing because that of all of that and how he was depicted and all of those sort of things, so we don't do that at all. Um, uh, and I don't know whether that because that, I don't think that is funny and that doesn't have a place. Whereas you know, calling Carrie ann Kelly a feral dinosaur, I think does have a place because you know she's proved it this year. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. It's like well different people have said different things and say uh, you know we're not here to hurt victims I guess you know someone got offended about the um, Jeffrey Epstein joke and the Prince Andrew joke but on
1: that like, oh but I mean that's that, yeah. I, I think that that to me is a perfect example of um, open open season on yeah. an offender that is you know it's there's nothing that can be done to Jeffrey Epstein except make jokes about the no. situation that facilitated, and sure,
0: it. it's not a great, you know, it's not a, um, it, you know, by the sounds of all the allegations, it wasn't a fabulous thing that it, that went on, and you know, and he's dead now, and but Prince Andrew isn't, and you know, there's, it's in the news, and it was on an island, so I. I was like, "Oh, so gotta go in." Um, so yes, it's um, it's it, it's interesting. It was fun to like pick the best bits of the year. And
1: so, well, yeah. because it existed for six years before it, because twenty nineteen is where so many of the gags have gotten their inspiration. Yeah. Mm. How much of the, how much of it? Is from pre-2019, the st- structure or the basic Yeah, concept? it's
0: like the, the, the Home and Away stuff, the the whole opening number, the idea of of doing a an Australiana circle of life, Julie Taymor piss take.
1: Which is actually one of my favourite highlights of the uh, show. It's fabulous. It's so rich. And it's just, you know, finding
0: those... You know, it's appalling as well, but it's very funny. And, um, you know that was one of the first things I knew I wanted to do and was to do that home and away version of, of, um, of the circle of life. Cause why not? Um, and to depict Aussie animals, but to sort of each Aussie animal that we had sort of topped itself. So, you know, when we end up with the stingray that went through Steve when I think it's quite you know, that's pushing the line.
1: That think was what, should come, you know. That, that was one of the um the times where I was like, Oh, it, like that was the one of the gags I was like, this is I'm laughing out loud and I know I shouldn't be, but it's hopefully it's why is this okay in my mind? It's because it's been long enough or something like that is was a was the long Yes, yeah, so well I hope much. it has been long enough. But I haven't
0: had anybody get upset about it yet. Uh, so and we've done it several times now, but No, people laugh. Um, I also... We we did him so cute. The Stingray is so beautifully, you know, floaty and has big googly puppet eyes. And I go, well, it's a happy Stingray. It's a respectful celebration of a moment. Yes, we um, we don't have blood on Steve. You know, it's just... Steve Irwin happens to be operating the Stingray. I think that's funny. Um, but you know, that's my sense of
1: humor. It's my sense of humor too, and it's really funny. When was I feel like I was always encouraged by the teachers who realised I loved to write wacky stories, and parents who never thought my humor was um, wrong or oh, no, actually the opposite. Oh, anytime, right. any time anyone, any teacher did have a problem with anything I wrote, that was really. You know, like inappropriate. They were like, "Well, they just don't understand your sense of humour. I was really encouraged to have a warped sense of humour, as my my mum describes it. And I think, and I think it was because it's the same as her sense of humour. So she saw where I got it from and almost supported that. Well, that's nice. Did you feel championed by you know by supportive parents for uh, your yeah, humour growing up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They always have been amazing. They were here on Wednesday for uh, opening uh. night.
0: Um, you know they've been fabulous and um i know my nan would have loved this one and i'm sad because we lost her this year and um i know that it was sad like it, it's it's funny when you lose someone that, and nan was everything always mm. so for her um to not have her around is so strange and for her not to be at this show and to go oh that's sort of my first big opening since she passed so you know but she was at everything else
1: who was who was there anyone when you were growing up that did what you do that allowed you to realize it could be done i just wanted to do
0: musical theater and so that whole dream of of that was you know i was going to see lots of um lots of shows and you know my mother wrote to Deborah Byrne because I was a huge Debbie Byrne fan and um, she wrote to Deb and said that we were coming to Les Mis and Deb called her on our house phone and said this is the number to call on the night and and we'll come and see you." and all of these amazing um, all of the cast of Les Mis she got them to stick around, sing me happy birthday, sign my program. And we they did all of that on the stage of Les Mis when I was like 10 years old. Wow. So, I mean, some amazing things like that have happened to me where, you know, um, I felt like, oh, I really want to be part of this. And it was always encouraged. And, yeah, I was lucky that, um, you know, I had those sort of opportunities, um, but You know, we weren't from a showbiz family at all. My granddad loved musicals. Um, I shouldn't say loved, I should say loves. He's still around. And um, granddad used to buy all of the new um, cast recordings of every show. And then I'd go to granny and granddad's house and listen to the brand new Broadway albums and everything. Granddad always loved them. So um, he's still getting them. He still buys them. Everything that new that comes out, he hears the show. Love it. And buys, the, buys the soundtrack of a cast recording. and Yeah. What's your
1: favourite musical?
0: Ooh, that's tough. I really love Cabaret, the musical. Mm. One of my favourites.
1: <laughs> um, Would you... Is there a role in that that you would love to
0: all do all of them no uh, <laughs> is it a sally Bowles? Is it a i once thought i could do mc um but and i used to do um at a steadfords when i was a child i used to do um uh if you could see it through my eyes i used to do that all the time in like competitions hilarious i'm now doing my lips so you'll have to talk
1: yeah i shall i uh yeah i i'm actually dating A guy, Jason, my boyfriend, was the Cliff. Yeah, he was the um, the what's the name, Michael Gray character in the film. And uh, so I never got to see him do it because I was only dating him after he had done it. But I would have loved to have seen him in that role, especially because I weirdly had a cabaret poster on my wall for the better part of my twenties. So talk about manifestation. Yes, wow.
0: No, I'd love to do I'd love to do cabaret, right? but I mean,
1: you know. What's the best song in cabaret? I think I, I know what mine is just because I think it's a great ode to life, which is like life as a cabaret. Yeah, instead. well, I
0: love cabaret the song. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I love mine here as well, and other oh, fairly good songs. Um, of course, I get to see most of them as Liza Vanelli when yes. I do my Liza show. So I've sung maybe this time and and cabaret so many times. Um, but
1: yeah, you were saying that. Uh I think it might even before we were rolling that you that your audience isn't predominantly gay guys, it's women over forty. No, it's funny. <laughs> um but what's yeah, what is it about the uh the connection between a certain type of gal and that world, that humour, that performance, that energy that you think is so relatable and energy giving? I
0: don't know. Look, I just think that um Maybe it's just the political incorrectness of it all, and the the fact that it 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 speaks so freely. um I think that's part of it, um, and why, you know, I think why some people feel like they can't say anything really anymore, um which I don't agree with, and obviously not because I'm doing this show. Uh, but yeah, but I do think. There's a, an element of that, but also, you know, it is intelligent humour, even though it's there's some really base jokes. It's clever. Like, I mean, it's not there just to shock you. Uh, it does actually say something, which is what I kind of hoped for this year, but it is funny to see people's reactions, especially when we start getting into Greta Thunberg.
1: Yeah, um, well, I mean, I feel like that's one of the, like, you know, yeah, that's, you use Greta Thun- Thunberg's recording yeah. in the the piece, and I feel like people's because it takes people a moment to know to know what it is what it is and they, you, you, you drip feed it in and then after a while they realize and they find it really humorous but I feel mm. like it's celebrating of
0: I think it's celebrating Greta I love that you know my daughter is a conservation warrior you know, and that's what she wants to do um I think it's very funny um but yeah, but I don't think we sort of do anything. But I think it's funny when you, some people are just shocked at the fact that she's even in there. I'm like, yeah, but we can't do a 2019 show without a, without Greta if, in there. She you, was pretty major.
1: If you took a time capsule, I know well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Would, climate change discussion is the one of the biggest shifts, really.
0: Yeah, and we always wanted elements of that to be part of the of this piece because it had to always. You know, speak about fucking with nature and and what we've done. And, you know, as all, you know, eco disaster movies where they've manufactured a dinosaur or whatever are saying, really. It's that, commentary. Yeah. Um, so it's quite fun.
1: I, um, where did you learn to to well? How has your ability to be a face evolved over time? Because it's actually the transformation that I'm observing. I think the biggest the biggest shift is the dark shadow around the eyes was one of the biggest leaps. Yeah, and then a lip always makes a big difference. Yeah,
0: lip always does. Um, oh look, I'm just so used to doing it now. Well, I guess I did. I look back at photos of baby drag me,
1: and um, what year? Um, what year was it? Two
0: thousand one. Okay. Um, was when I well two thousand end of two thousand was when I started, uh, and that was um, when I was working started working at the Imperial with Mitzi, um, and I looked in and I go God I'm not wearing any makeup we not nowhere near oh fuck I fucked it up um, not wearing anywhere near enough makeup.
1: Uh, and yeah, that's a real telltale sign of of a pre-internet era baby drag was just um the same sort of makeup that an actual girl would, apply. would
0: have put on yeah
1: um and nowadays we're living in a kardashian post-drag race oh, era where everyone did. knows about a, a, sh- um, a contour, a contour uh, and yeah a,
0: well we vanity taught me how to contour when i was quite young um But, you You know, ladies and gentlemen of the Lion Queen Company, this is
1: your one hour call. Ladies and gentlemen of the Lion Queen Company, one hour to the stage. Thank you. Talk
0: about realness. I know, you're giving hour call. I know. This is what happens when you're doing the show. Um, Okay, I'm just going to fix those eyelashes a bit.
1: Yeah, what do you think about this uh, era of you know we've been I mean, twelve like we're up to the twelfth season of Drag Race? Everyone's a expert now on what it yes. what they think drag is all about. And do you think that it makes for a more educated, more enthusiastic audience, or is it not as I've, magical anymore?
0: No, I think it still. I think that the thing I'd like to see more is that you know the people who are at home watching Drag Race come to see uh, this, you know, stuff like this Support that's going on, drag. yeah mm. and and obviously mine's my sort of shows are on a you know, a different one uh, different sort of sphere to just going down the local pub and watching the girls um, but you know, there's some there's still great drag here in, in Australia, there's amazing drag and there's some really talented, clever, funny um, queens and um I love seeing. Um, I love going to see the girls, whether it's you know just doing bingo
1: or whether it's you know doing a production show. Well, the the Imperial has reopened in the last couple of years. Yeah. and has brought a drag culture back to that neck of the woods. Yeah, is there any are there any other venues that you think are doing great doing oh, God's work? So,
0: well, always um, Universal. And um, an arc. The shows are always great at arc, though they're so late. So this is how I become such a nana. I used to do the seven a.m. show on Sundays at arc. Wow. I would do a seven a.m. back in would the you Would you wake
1: up at five? No, because you...
0: I would be on at the Imperial in the night before, so I would finish work about two, and I would go home and put a towel on my pillow, and I would sleep in my face. <laughs> And wake up and do a touch up and go to um and go to um Arc at like six thirty and everyone would be munted and you'd walk in and it would be like <laughs> looking at you. <laughs> and Bright you'd eyed, bushy tailed And I'd be like mm. <laughs> And then Charisma and I would go in and do the show. We'd take our faces off and go to the Californian cafe for a for breakfast. That was what we do it at nine o'clock. Because so we do a seven o'clock and an eight o'clock show, and it was packed from the night before. Not anymore. Um, <laughs> that's what's happened. They've killed all of that stuff.
1: I know. It's a combination of you know gentrification of Sydney, like pushing mm. things out and, and squashing licensing, and also the digital evolution. It doesn't feel like yeah. a you know revolution. It feels like maybe people are just happy just to scroll yeah I
0: know it's that's that is the thing but Mm. um, but it's it's interesting that I can't believe I used to do that it's funny is
1: that you have it well you said for six years from Lion Queen till the point at which it was realized have you got your next Lion Queen that's gestating currently for the for the next thing I don't know
0: next cuz this one's been a big hard one to to get on so I think it's, um I don't know. I don't know what I, what I will do next.
1: Mm. I have no idea. Um, and you, should, you didn't answer one of the questions that I wanted oh. to find out about before, which was we I asked you what your lesser favourite part of the job was, but what are the parts of the job that are the most joyful and the most transcendent for you?
0: Oh, doing it, being out there. Absolutely.
1: The it's, actual audience engagement? Yep. It's the
0: reaction. It's the reaction. And, I mean, I'm backstage getting changed for most of the Circle of Life number, but I know when all of the things are happening. So, to hear them roar and scream with shock and delight as particular things happen in that number, I'm just... It gives me so much joy. And then also to say horrible things um, like I do, and for them to... For them to just be so shocked and so thrilled
1: and just,
0: yeah, I I really, that's the best bit. It's just being out there and doing it. That's why I love it.
1: And you've also got, I mean, your singing voice is so powerful. If you took away the narrative and the costuming and it was just singing, would it be as much fun or does it need to be the whole package? Yeah, I mean, I love
0: all of it. Um, and, and when I do sort of more concert shows, I love doing that too. But something like this is just really special. This is a really, you know, that, it's, that it is like my own mini musical that I've written, you know, and stolen all these songs for.
1: Um, not not mini musical, it's a musical. It's a musical. I, know. I mean, there's, all the songs are original. Well, well they're, they're piss takes yeah, on well known yeah, songs. Yeah. Um, I well, I feel like it is really special, and it is really uniquely Australian humour and culture. And it, it, I'm, I'm, yeah. I want this interview to go live on Sunday, two days after we've recorded it, so people can come and check it out yeah. at the Opera House or at the at the Darlinghurst. Darling yeah. um, what if I, I always love to sort of close by checking in with people and saying, you know, if I was to speak to you in a years' time, is there a A project or something that's a that's a process or a twinkle in your eye right now that you would love to have either landed, nailed, or be well on your way to completing? Oh gosh.
0: I don't know, there's a musical coming that I really want to do. So I haven't done a big show in ages, so I would be hoping that, you know, by then it would be cast and I would be doing it. Great. That would be great. I think that's next for me. And or or to have one of my TV pictures, like, and to be able to do something like that. I'd like to do something that is um, on screen for a change. I'd even love to turn this into a movie. I think it would be a very funny movie, Um, especially because you could do proper CGI dinosaurs, not just, you know um not just a puppet um but yeah i think yeah it, there's a couple of things but yeah i would like to do this particular show so
1: is there a process when you've got lots of different pots on the boil and then you're just seeing what there's a market for and what the time is do you dedicate your time and go right for the next month i'm writing a pilot for a show and for or for or do you just dip in and out of different projects based on where the inspiration's coming at any one time?
0: Um, no, no, there's there's always things. There's always things going on. I've got like
1: the concerts coming
0: up with Conchita Wurst, who won Eurovision, and Kate Miller-Heidke, so the three of us, which will be pretty fabulous. What a what a bill! I know it's pretty amazing, and a forty-piece orchestra. <gasps> it's going to be stunning. When so and where? That's at Mardi Gras at the State Theatre here in Sydney, and in Melbourne at Hamer Hall the next night. And then I turn I turn forty on the night of that concert, so and the world will explode into glitter and fireworks. No, well, that'll be fun. I love having a birthday around Mardi Gras. Um, but yeah, so that's happening. That's happening on my birthday next year. And
1: then I think I just want to go to Bali and lie down. Uh, Well, uh, you deserve it. (laughs) Thank you so much for having a chat. Thank you, darling. I'm going to let everyone know that this is happening at the Opera House another week. A couple of of days after. Two more days, yes. Two more days. And then Darlinghurst Theatre. And then Darlinghurst Theatre. Yeah, fantastic. Yes. Go and support local drag, locally crafted narrative panto
0: yes absolutely
1: (laughs) thanks for having me my pleasure